This is our Simon Don reading group. Uh, we're still on individuation volume two. Um, this may be our last session, or uh, depending on how far we get in the text today. Uh, so we're we're still reading form information potentials. So last time, let's see, what did we do last time? Um, so last time we looked at Simon Don's uh, criticism of Gestalt theory, um, Gestalt psychology. Simon Don thinks that the notion of form that Gestalt psychology introduces is an important contribution, uh, but he thinks that the equation of this form with a stable state, um, uh, an equilibrium state, is a mistake. Um, so in Gestalt psychology, there's this um, sort of idea that the stable form, that the, the good form is the stable form in the same way that, um, so I mentioned this last time, in the same way that a bubble uh, forms in a spherical shape because it minimizes surface tension. Uh, likewise, uh, our perceptual apparatus would sort of uh, realize a, a stable state because it minimizes some quantity. Um, and so when we perceive um, a, a circle, uh, over a background of other shapes, for example, that circle would be a stable equilibrium state. Um, and Simon Don points out, uh, he's, he's discussed this uh, issue in volume one as well, uh, but he points out again here that um, the forms that are good forms in the sense that they stand out and we perceive them easily or they have um, a quality of attraction to them in the sense that we, uh, you know, turn towards them and, um, uh, you know, perceive them as being, um, you know, well-formed and, and beautiful uh, in general. Um, these forms are not necessarily simple forms and the often are not the simplest forms. And so in, in volume one, when we looked at this question, he, he mentions the human face, of course, as a, a, a key example. So human faces are not simple geometric figures. Um, they're uh, very complex figures. Um, and um, uh, but then you can still recognize a human face despite um, uh, various, you know, you can have a face um, masked by different lines or partially covered or whatever, and you can still recognize it as a face and you can often recognize the person um, who is who is hidden. So um, a human face is a good form in that sense, but it's not um, a, a stable form or an equilibrium state. It's not a, a simple minimization of some quantity. Um, and uh, Simondo also in volume one mentioned the role of animal forms uh, in perception of children. So children um, can perceive an animal for the first time and they can recognize, you know, this end is the head and this is the tail and uh, these are the legs and so on. Um, they recognize the, the sort of body schema of the animal. Um, and so this animal shape has a, um, has a, a good form for this child. But um, again, a, a shape of an animal is not a simple geometrical figure that can be derived by minimizing some quantity. Um, and, and so Simon Don takes this to be um, a general sort of um, uh, issue for Gestalt psychology or, or the theory behind Gestalt psychology. Um, and then likewise, he, he makes another uh, similar type of criticism with, um, in relation to cybernetics. Um, or to information theory in particular. Um, so the uh, mathematical theory of communication introduces the uh, quantitative measure of the information contained in a message, which has to do with the um, uh, 
probability of uh, of the states of the source given the um, given the message. So if you have a simple source, um, like you're you're flipping a coin and transmitting the result of that coin flip to someone, uh, you know, across uh, across the city or whatever. Um, uh, then the source has only two states, um, and so the the signal only carries one bit of information. It, it either tells you that's heads or tails. Um, uh, and then a, a more uh, complex source, um, so a source that can uh, emit multiple different types of messages, would would um, the signal would would carry more information. Uh, but then Simon Don points out that um, in this situation, um, the the um, the more uh, the source and the uh, and the receiver sort of line up with each other, the more they are um, in sync with each other, the less information is transmitted. Um, and in certain um, applications or in certain domains, this is a sort of paradoxical consequence. And he talks about learning, for example. Um, so when you learn, um, uh, so like a I guess an example would be um, a baseball player learns to detect what kind of pitch is coming in, um, uh, you know, based on different properties of the flight of the ball. Um, um, they can sort of predict where the ball will end up and then how to hit it with the bat. Um, uh, and when you're a starting baseball player or, or someone who doesn't really know anything about baseball, of course, you don't really receive any information about um the flight of the ball, you you just see a ball coming towards you and you sort of swing at it wildly. Um, and uh, it's only as you learn to um, detect the uh, the different pitches that you actually start to receive information um, and about where the ball is going to end up. Uh, and so in this case, it seems like learning is actually um, a, a process of uh, being able to receive, inf receive more information, whereas on the sort of mathematical quantitative theory of information, um, learning should be something like, uh, like the more you acquire information about the source, the less, uh, the less information the, the signal um, contains for you or the less uncertainty there is for you about the source. Uh, and so Simon Don points out that this is a, a sort of paradoxical consequence. So both um, Gestalt psychology and uh, information theory have these sort of, um, paradoxical consequences in terms of how they make sense of form and information. And so he wants to um, sort of uh, introduce new concepts that allow for a better uh, conceptualization of the um, of form and information that will avoid these kinds of consequences. And uh, so that's where we left off uh, last time when he um, introduced his notion of uh, tension of information, um, which is how he's going to to solve this problem. Uh, so I'll pick up from there uh, and uh, read a page and then we'll discuss. Perhaps it would be possible, and this is the starting point for our personal thesis that we would like to present now, to speak of a quality of information or of attention of information. In an energy like electrical energy, one considers a factor of quantity, intensity multiplied by time, and a qualitative factor related to the difference of potential between the boundaries and the source. In the same way, it would perhaps be possible to characterize form in order to explain processes of interaction, not only by its quantity, but by its tension. And the good form would be one that corresponds to an elevated tension. Tension obviously seems like a rather singular term. However, uh, if it is permitted to continue using this analogy between the natural sciences and what would like to be the initiator, 
the structural germ of a human science, would it not be possible to invoke this type of notion? The quantity of energy that can be stored in a condenser is increasingly elevated for a certain surface of armatures the closer they are brought together, all while remaining isolated, unless we wind up with a disruptive discharge through the insulator. Is there not something analogous in good form? Would it not be that which contains in it a certain field, i.e. both an isolation between two antithetical contradictory terms and nevertheless a correlation? Wouldn't the good form be one that contains an elevated field of form, i.e. a good distinction, a good isolation between the two terms or the plurality of terms that constitute it, and yet between them an intense field, i.e. a power of producing energetic effects if something is introduced into it? The fact that there is a significant electrostatic field between two condenser armatures is indicated by the fact that if a body is introduced into this field, it becomes intensely charged. Wouldn't there be something similar in the good form? The good form, as Plato predicted, would be a dyad or a plurality of coordinated dyads together, i.e. already a network, a schema, something simultaneously one and multiple, that contains a correlation between different terms, a rich correlation between different and distinct terms. One and multiple, the significative link of the one and the multiple. This would be the structure of form. If this were true, it could be said that the good form is one that is close to paradox, close to contradiction, all while not being contradictory in logical terms. And the tension of form would be defined in the following way. The fact of approaching paradox without becoming a paradox, approaching contradiction without becoming a contradiction. This can only be a hypothesis, one that supposes an, an analogy between the, the natural sciences and the human sciences. In this sense, one would speak of a tension of form and to the same extent, a quality of information which would be a concentration up until the point where it attains a point of disruption, a joining of contraries into a unity, the existence of a field internal to this schema of information, a certain dimension uniting aspects or dynamisms that are usually incompatible. This good form or form rich in potential would be a tense complex, concentrated systematized plurality. In language, it would become a semantic organism. Uh, I'll stop here because this is another long paragraph. Um, right, so here he's... Um, brought in this notion of attention of information. And um, I can maybe mention here as well that um, the word tension uh, here uh, in French, tension, is, uh, is the word for voltage in French as well. Um, so Simon Dong is working with a sort of electrical analogy here. Um, the idea is uh, like uh, in the same way that you have an electrical charge that can be discharged um, in certain conditions, Likewise, we have this tension of information, this sort of state um, of a potential that can be um, discharged in, in certain conditions and produce effects. Um, and uh, he, so he points out that this notion of attention of information requires um, something like this indefinite dyad that Plato had, uh, had, had introduced and, and that Simon Don't talked about earlier. Um, and uh, so to have a, a tension uh, of information uh, the same way as to have a t an electrical charge, you have to have um, two elements. You have to have a, a dyad um, and there's a, a difference in potential between the two. Um, uh, and so uh, this, this notion of a dyad is uh, sort of incorporated into the notion of tension that Simon Don is introducing. And so that's sort of the reason why he went over this notion of, of the dyad in Plato earlier in the text. Uh, and then, this, so this notion of a dyad is not just sort of two things next to each other. It's, it's this combination of the one and the multiple. So it's, it's these two things that are separate, uh, but at the same time have this um, relation to each other. And I think we can probably tie this together with Simon Don's account of relation as having the status of being. 
Um, so um, it's only when there is this relation in the true sense of the term, this relation that has the status of being between two terms, uh, only in that case that there's a real tension of information between those two terms. Uh, so when we have um, you know just two entities um, that exist next to each other but don't have this real relation between them, there would be no tension of information uh, in that situation. This um, section is interesting in light of what he was just talking about uh, at the end of last our last session, which is the idea that at information theory, the closer the transmitter is to the receiver, the less uh, information there is. But it seems like he wants to argue that for qu the qualitative factor that he's talking about, the closer the terms are, the greater the tension is, and therefore the higher the quality of information. Um, I don't know if that, I guess intuitively it seems like it should be the opposite way, that the, the greater the distance, the greater the contradiction between the two terms, so long as it isn't so great that a signification can't be worked out of it, the um, greater the tension would be. But maybe it's just the way that he is, um, it's the fact that he used this paradigm from, uh, this paradigm, technical paradigm about the armatures, which I don't really understand, uh, that is the reason that he was talking about bringing the elements together. And maybe it wasn't in response to the earlier point about information theory. Yeah, um, I think this bit is a little bit difficult because of um, the sort of analogical nature of his um, argument here. So he's he's taking, as you said, this technical paradigm um, from electronics, and then he's sort of applying it to, um, or he's he's trying to extract a, a schema from it that can be used in the foundation of the human sciences, uh, and so that leaves us with. Um, sort of a, a problem of understanding, you know, what exactly does it mean to say that um, two, uh, I guess, concepts or two elements of a concept are distant or close to each other? Um, you know, that like there are, you can um, maybe make sense of this in terms of uh, similarity, um, but, you know, we've seen in other texts that um, Simon Dom thinks that similarity is a kind of misleading notion um, uh, in relation to analogy. Um, um, but yeah, I think um, the the distance, uh, so the the part that we read last time where he talks about the, um, the um, uh, I guess, correspondence between the emitter and the receiver um, and the reduction of the quantity of information transmitted with the degree of, of uh, correspondence between the two. Um, I think maybe we should not think of that as a kind of distance. Um, I think um, I think what he wants us to think about here in in this notion of tension of information is not sort of um, uh, yeah, it's, it's not a distance in the sense that it um, it has to do with an intensity as opposed to um, an extensive quantity. So. When you when you measure, uh, and so this like the, the difference between extensive and intensive quantities for anyone who um, is not familiar with this notion um, um, has to do with the way that they um, can be manipulated. Um, so uh, an extensive quantity like um, 
volume, for example, you can take a volume and you can divide it in half, and then you have two half volumes. But in an intensive quantity like temperature, you can't say like divide 30 degrees in half and, and produce 15 degrees or something like that. It, it doesn't really make sense to, um, to divide it. It's, a, it's just a scale. Um, and uh, I think his notion here of attention of information is meant to be an intensive quantity, um, whereas the um, the information theoretic uh, concept of the information contained in a signal is one that's an extensive quantity. Um, so you, if you receive half of a message, you, you, you've received half as much information as you would have received if you received the whole message. Um, uh, and so this tension of information, um, uh, because it's this intensive quantity, I think we can't really think of it as a distance. Um, but yeah, th there is, um, I think it, in the way he sets it out here, we are meant to think of it as sort of the converse uh, of the case of the um, correspondence between the emitter and the receiver that he talked about earlier. So whereas in this quantitative theory of, of uh, information, the uh, correspondence between the emitter and receiver reduces the amount of information that can be transmitted between them. Uh, in the uh, in the case of this um, intensive uh, tension theory of information, there's um, the more the emitter and the receiver are uh, in correspondence with each other, the more um, the more uh, the more they can be in tension, um, the more uh, potentially the more information um, that dyad between the two can have. So maybe hmm, the correspondence between the terms in the qualitative sense would be something like internal resonance in the system. Yeah, I think that's a, a good suggestion because um, like he talked about, like um, just what the part we read last week, he talked about the um, resonance of oscillators. Um, so the the oscillators um, will resonate with each other if they're set to the same frequency uh, or if they um, are at a similar frequency. Um, and I guess, um, yeah, I guess this resonating um, is sort of the um, uh, tension of information in that situation. So um, the... Uh, the oscillators that are um, not at the same frequency will not enter into resonance with each other. They, so they won't produce this sort of new structure in the situation. Um, and uh, whereas the reson the oscillators that are at a similar frequency will uh, will enter into resonance with each other. And, and so the situation will undergo this new structuration. So I think, yeah, I think that notion of internal resonance is uh, is a good suggestion here. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, so we stopped right at the top of 689, uh, where there would be compatibility, uh, if someone else would like to read. Yeah, I can read. There would be compatibility, there would be compatibility in the internal reverberation of a schema within it. And perhaps it would also be possible to measure the potential of form, the tension of form, in the same way that an electrical tension is measured i.e. by the quantity of obstacles that it manages to overcome, the external resistance across which it manages to produce an effect. It can be said that a generator possesses in its terminals a tension that is more elevated than that of another generator if it can manage to transmit the same current across a greater chain of resistances, across resistances whose total is more elevated. 
This property is what would characterize the form's pregnancy. The pregnancy of the form would not be its stability in the sense of the thermodynamics of stable states and convergent series of transformations, but its capacity to traverse, animate, and structure a varied domain, increasingly varied and heterogeneous domains. The difference between this hypothesis and that of information theory is the fact that a theory of the tension of information supposes that the possible series of receivers are not, sorry, possible series of receivers are open. The tension of information is proportional to a schema's capacity to be received as information by receivers that are not defined in advance. Thus, while a probabilistic theory can be applied to the measurement of the quantity of information in the prediction of an exchange between emitter and receiver, a measurement of the tension of information could hardly occur except through experimentation, at least under current conditions. For example, it can be said that the hylomorphic schema or the notion of archetype possesses a high tension of information because each one has, in, has incited structures of significations for 24 centuries across widely diverse cultures. The tension of information would be a schema's property to structure a domain, to propagate through it, to organize it. But the tension of information cannot act alone. It does not also contribute all the energy that can guarantee the transformation. It only contributes this tension of information, i.e. a certain arrangement that can modulate much more considerable energies deposited in the domain that will receive the form, take on a structure. There can be form-taking only if two conditions are joined together. The tension of information contributed by a structural germ and an energy harbored by the milieu that takes form. The milieu, which corresponds to the old notion of matter, must be in a tensed metastable state like a supersaturated or supercooled solution, which is waiting for the, for the crystalline germ so that it can pass to the stable state by unleashing the energy that it harbors. So there is both a tension in the seed of information and a tension in the system that will be informed, uh, but the tension of information is structural in the seed and energetic in the milieu. Does that sound right? Um, hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, there's definitely um, a potential in the milieu uh, that undergoes structuration. Um, I'm not sure whether we should call that a tension of information, though. Um, it's, no, the, um, the tension of information is in the, in the seed. But the he says the matter or the milieu is in it also in a tensed metastable state. Yeah, so I think um, yeah, I think we we want to distinguish between the um, tensed metastable state and the tension of information. Maybe not a great choice of terminology here to use um, this term tense or tension um, in both cases. But I think um, I think we can think we we should be thinking of the um, tension of information as the property of the, the crystalline germ and then the um, metastable state as a state of uh, potential to be structured, um, to, to receive structure. Um, uh, I think that's um, how we are meant to understand this uh, relationship between the two. Uh, and so the tension of information would be, would be contained in the, um, in the crystalline germ or whatever um, sort of structural condition um, plays the role of the crystalline germ uh, in, in a different domain. 
Uh, and so this this is the um, the the term in the relation that that bears the um, tension of information. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you know when was this before uh, was this talk before um, the dissertation was written? Uh, I think um, it, it was definitely in the same time period as he was writing the dissertation. I'm not sure whether he had already submitted the dissertation when hmm. this talk was given or not. Um, but it's definitely contemporary with the the writing of the of the dissertation. I guess I had been thinking of the. It seems like there's more of an emphasis on the this. Well, I haven't read the physical individuation section for a long time, but my understanding of that, at least looking back through the other stuff that we've read, is that the seed. I don't know. It seems like the seed should be part of the energetic system. Uh, I would think that the system would be. So I think it isn't the seed sort of one of the terms in the disparation that results in the information of the uh, the crystal. And as one of the terms, it would seems like it, it is itself part of the, the energetic system. Yeah, so it definitely has to be an energetic interaction between the, um, the solution and the, the uh, seed crystal. Um, and, and that interaction is what brings about the, the structuration of the, um, of the uh, solution to, to uh, form the crystal. Um, I think... Yeah, so in in volume one, in the section on physical individuation, we we noticed uh, as we were going through it that he kind of hesitates between describing the situation as one in which there are two interacting terms, the uh, the structural term or the or a structural condition and the um, energetic condition, and then also sometimes he describes it in terms of three terms, um, and so he introduces the energetic condition as a, a third. Um, factor in this interaction. Um, and yeah, so there's a certain amount of ambiguity in terms of how many um, factors this relationship is meant to have or, or how many um, elements we're, we're supposed to think of in this uh, conceptual schema. Um, but I think the uh, uh, here we, we can think of what is shared between the um, the yeah, we can think of the energetic condition as what is shared between the um, structural term and the um, uh, the um, material, or the uh, yeah. So in this case, the crystalline um, germ and the solution. So energy is what they share, but they have different um, um, organizations of that energy, and so this is why he talks about. Um, the crystalline germ as modulating the energy of the uh, of the solution. So the the solution uh, uh, has a certain amount of thermal energy um, um, that is in a sort of disorganized state, uh, and then the crystalline germ modulates that energy and um, imposes a structure on it or brings about a structuration of that um, of that energy. Uh, and uh, so Simon is comparing this to um, a modulator in electronics where you have a, um, a carrier signal with a, a high amount of energy or a relatively high amount of energy and then a, um, a modulator signal with a, a relatively low amount of energy that um, modulates the, the carrier signal. Um, so I think, yeah, I think we can think of energy as what is common or as the shared um, 
property of uh, or or as the sort of domain of interaction between the seed crystal and the material uh, condition. Um, but the information is the the property that the seed crystal has of uh, being able to bring about a structuration of the material. Okay, thank you. That makes sense. And uh, yeah, so we see here, um, he gives us some examples of what exactly this would mean. So um, um, when he talks about how the hylomorphic schema, for example, um, we can see this as having a high tension of information um, in the sense that, um, you know, the, this schema of thought was um, sort of the dominant mode of understanding the universe for well, he says 24 centuries, that's maybe um, a bit of an exaggeration, but um, uh, for, um, uh, you know, the, the Western world um, for uh, hundreds of years, um, the, this notion of uh, form and matter um, was sort of the central notion around which uh, all of the science and philosophy of the time was organized. Um, and... Uh, and this was the case in a variety of different um, cultural contexts. So in the um, uh, early medieval um, Islamic world, uh, Aristotelian philosophy was um, sort of the, the dominant uh, school. And then it was you know, transferred into Western Europe. Um, and so you have very different cultures that um, adopt this schema or the schema is capable of structuring thought in these very different cultural domains. Uh, and so it's in in this in this uh, this example gives us a way of uh, understanding what it means for um, a schema of thought to have um, a high degree or high tension of information. So any um, uh, thought uh, schema that that is capable of bringing about this kind of structuration in a wide variety of domains of thought uh, in different cultures, different time periods, et cetera. The, this is something that has a high tension of information and then um, an idea that someone maybe proposes and then only has application in one uh, limited domain of thought and um, only in one particular um, cultural context uh, is one that would have less um, or a lower degree of information, uh, of tension of information. Uh, and so uh, this gives us, I mean, he says that we can't really measure uh, the tension of information, but this gives us a sort of... Um, uh, approximation of uh, you know estimating the degree of uh, of tension of information of different ideas. We can sort of compare the extent to which they are capable of bringing about this structuration in a wide variety of different domains. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, if someone else would like to read from this particular type of rapport, uh, uh, let me do it. Sure. Uh... This particular type of uh, rapport that exists between the structure germs tension of information and informable metastable domain, which harbors substantial energy, turns the operation of form taking into a modulation. The form is comparable to the signal that conveys a relay, a relay without adding energy to the work of the educator, edu actuator. Nevertheless, structures that can be compared to technical modulator, modulator are much rarer the domains in which processes of form taking arise. In order for the hypothesis, we have advanced to be applicable in all cases. 
It is therefore advisable to indicate according to what processes of form taking can take place by way of modulation within a domain that is not contained in a modulator. We suppose that the operation of modulation then take place in a microstructure that advances progressively through the domain that takes form, constituting the moving limit between the informed and the stable part and the not yet informed and thus still metastable part of domain. In the majority of cases of form taking, this operation would transductive, i.e. advancing little by little, start, starting with a region that has already received the form and going toward that which remains metastable. We'll therefore again find a mobile asymmetry of holomorphic couple with a meta capable of tendency and the archetypical archetyper power of the form that pre-exists the form taking. If this hypothesis deserves to be kept, it must be applied to the different types of form taking, from ontogenesis and phylogenesis up to group phenomena, and it must allow us to indicate processes of interaction that conform to the scheme of modulation, generally according to a transductive mode. In the domain of somatic ontogenesis, uh, studies like those of Arner and Gesell on growth and Im embryology of behavior seems to be able to axiomatize it by notions like those we have just proposed as a hypothesis. Indeed, for Gesell, the ontogenesis of behavior from conception till death is an evolution that marks the succession of a certain number of, the of stages, sometimes of adaptation to external worlds. Sometimes of the headless apparent the differentiation of adaptive adjustments that the search for new adjustment. The crisis through which these new adaptive adjustments are thought is characterized by what gets caused self-regulative fluctuations. The studies he has conducted on the regime of the self-sustenance uh, of infants reveal that an infant by itself is capable of finding the structures of adaptation for feeding behavior. And for the regimen of rest and waking, just as much as when it is wrapped to act by itself, as if the uh, definite uh, definite frameworks were imposed up imposed on it. If it is left to act by itself for a certain time, it goes on a diet, for example, of seven meals a day, and then sleeps for a certain time. Afterwards, when maturation has generated a new tendencies and new demands, a period of differentiation. And this adaptation intervenes. The infant wakes at any moment whatsoever seeks nourishment when it cries, all of a sudden it restructures its activity. But on the basis of six months a day, after a certain amount of time, there is another phase of the differentiation than an order of five meals and so on. The schema is clear. Alternation of adaptations to the external world and of these adaptations. There is the this these adaptations mark a moment in the search for a new structure when the already constituted regimen of adaptation no longer corresponds to internal tendencies and to the level of organism's maturation, maturation of the nervous system, of the digestive system, of the motor system. In certain American authors, Gejo and Carmichael, we find a generalization of this idea in the notion of ontogenesis of behavior which consists in a succession of paths of adaptation followed by disadaptation and dif differentiation. The patterns, i.e. the schemas of an initial adaptation, seem lost the moment 
when one arrives at the differentiation, but in fact, they are found to be reincorporated into the new adaptation. Thus, in the study of what, we, what he calls prone progression in the human infant, i.e. the fact of advancing in, uh, in the prone position concerning human nourishment before the age of one year, Gezer discovers four successive cycles, crawling, then crawling on four, all fours, then crawling on all extended fours, and finally walking upright. However, the patterns that are acquired in crawling, crawling arrive at a type of perfection. At the end of this initial period, then abruptly, when maturation is sufficient, a disadaptation occurs. The infant begins crawling poorly. It crawls poorly and stands up on its arms, places itself on its knees. It no longer advances. It is disadapted. It then takes a new type of adaptation. And within this new type of adaptation, ipsilateral and contralateral relations of inhibition and frustration, which already exist in crawling, are utilized again. The crawling is lost, yet the content of crawling is not totally lost, but reincorporated. Consequently, there is a type of dialectics in this learning. This learning and maturation go together, such that in walking upright, whereas an ipsilateral or contralateral Link and crawling becomes alternating movements of the arms and legs that allow for a harmonious equilibrium. It is possible to interrupt the ontogenesis of behavior as created by the succession of highly formalized individualized movements of full adaptation to the external world and of movements characterized on the contrary by the presence of tension, which appears to the purely, purely behaviorist observer as a disadaptation and consequently as a regression by which in reality show that the organism is in the process of constituting within it what could be called the systems of potentials, starting from which this domain of somewhat liquidated elementary schemas, schemas thereby constituting a metastable field like a super-cooled solution, will be able to be structured very quickly by its own energy around the theme of organization presenting a higher tension of form. That would be enough, right? Yes, that's good. Uh, we can stop here. Thanks. Um, right. So, yeah, so this is um, another sort of example um, of... Um, actually, before I get to the example, um, I'll, I'll just mention that he introduces again his notion of transduction um, here. So... Um, Transduction would be um, form-taking operations that progress from uh, uh, one formed um, part of a domain uh, that sort of progressively structures the domain um, on the basis or, or starting from this one partially structured point. So again, this is the crystallization example where you have the, the seed or the germ crystal um, that's uh, inserted into the solution. And then um, the solution crystallizes uh, progressively around the crystal that is that grows until it um, uses up all of the the uh, solution. Um, so this is the the notion of transduction that we've seen throughout volume one. Uh, um, but then he um, wants to um, pass to uh, an application of this concept of uh, or this uh, schema of uh, tension of information. Um, to human science and specifically to psychology of uh, infant behavior. Um, and um, 
I think this application is not a hundred percent clear. I think he um, like he gives a, a you know a description of the results that um, these psychologists have um, discovered, um, but you know mapping that um, those results onto the schema is not hundred percent obvious. Um, but the idea here, yeah. So we have this um, fact that infants undergo these stages of development where they um, they have a, a well-adapted behavior in a certain mode, um, whether it's, uh, for example, in, in the feeding behavior, it, um, they, they have a, a schedule where they are eating seven times a day, for example, and uh, sleeping in between. Um, and then um, after a while, they um, sort of, uh, that schedule breaks down and then they, they sort of, um, uh, you know, sleep and wake up and uh, and want to eat at sort of random times. And then after a while, again, that schedule sort of gets restructured uh, on the basis of six meals a day in, instead of seven. Um, and uh, and then likewise, in, in uh, locomotion, uh, you have uh, the infant that um, is capable of crawling and, um, you know, can get around in uh, an adequate way by crawling. Uh, and then um, that crawling behavior sort of starts to break down and the infant is sort of um, starting to uh, lift itself up off the ground. Uh, and um, and then after a while, it uh, um, will start to walk. Um, and so in these, in both cases of infant behavior here, um, we have this sort of cycle of um, um, Ad adapted behavior and then de-adaptation or apparent de-adaptation and then uh, a new adaptation afterwards. Um, and he actually uses the term dialectics for this. And that's something, I, again, we've seen uh, throughout volume one. He um, sometimes describes his own theory in terms of dialectics and sometimes um, rejects that term. Um, but um, here... Um, we should think of the behavior, the whole sort of system of behavior as this uh, domain that will undergo structure. Um, so um, the infant um, is capable of sort of uh, a wide variety of behaviors. Um, you can you know, move its arms and legs in, in various ways, um, but it uh, undergoes this process of structuration so that it, um, it will only um, move its arms and legs in a certain pattern, um, and that pattern brings about locomotion, whether it's in crawling or walking or or whichever form of locomotion. Um, and um, so the um, relationship between the cyclical nature of the um, development process and the uh, schema of thought, um, the uh, uh, you know relationship between the tension of information and the um, material condition, um, that relationship is not clear. So the, the cyclical nature is something that is, uh, seems to be new in this example and wasn't really introduced in uh, the other examples. Uh, the part, uh, what Enge uh, had read, uh, that part, of my understanding about uh, that part, to like, uh, based on your explanation and the discussion, it must be a continuing process of hylomorphic transformation that ha that's happening. If that's right, and then my uh, 
question uh, related to that uh, is uh, speed and the vector. Uh, what I want to say here is that uh, the example here, like the study of Arnold Gezel, which is called a somatic, about the somatic ontogenesis, it's like uh, some parts of some parts like, a little bit slow, or the other other parts a little bit uh, speedier, things like that. And that's kind of like what uh, Simong Dong explains, like um, the difference. I mean, metastable, stable, state, like coexist at the same time. That's a question. But another question related to vector is that that only goes to forward. It doesn't go back. That's a question because. Uh, uh, we, we don't have to like uh, relate to um, to lose, but the, um, if you would think like this is kind of uh, territorialization, retellization, something like that, deterioration, retellization, some kind of act action can be um, retarded. I mean, it goes back to the, the the older version, something like that, and you can think of it as uh, some kind of modulation or just going back to the the previous form and then matter altogether. So first question is speed and vector. And then in relation to this question, I'm thinking about the multiplicity of elements and then kind of re uh, action, reaction, interaction could happen between them too. What I want to say is that, for example, if we think of some, something uh, which has like uh, uh, some kind of like a state, stable state and metastable altogether, uh, not, not really thinking like uh, the milieu I mean, exterior milieu within it, like of course that that is composed of some elements, and then among them, there there could be some kind of uh, some kind of like a transduction inside. It, it could make everything more complex. But I just 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 wondering if that could happen. Yeah, that that's uh, yeah. So related to that, like uh, as far as I understand, it's not linear reaction, right? It's kind of more like if uh, if you visualize it, it would be more like a spider. Spider kind of process, as far as I understand. So, how, well, what what do you think of that? Like a uh, first one, speed and vector, and second one is like like within the the something there could be some other further reactions or actions, interactions altogether. Yeah, I think the the notion of a spiral is probably a good one here, um, because as he talks about with this infant development um, example. The, the infant is perfectly capable of getting around um, by crawling. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a perfectly adequate mode of locomotion. Um, but then at some point that crawling motion breaks down. Um, and, uh, and so this, you know, if you're just looking at behavior in terms of, you know, how effective is it at reaching a certain goal, then this is a kind of regression. It, it's a kind of... Um, um, uh, you know, lack or a, a kind of loss of a capacity that the infant had before um, that stage is reached. Um, but uh, Simon Don wants to see it instead of as uh, instead of seeing it as a regression or a loss. He wants us to see it in terms of a, a destructuring, uh, which is a sort of preliminary to a restructuring. Um, so we can think of this as a kind of spiral of structure, and then. Um, um, and then uh, an absence of structure, and then a new state of structure, um, which would be at a, a sort of higher level of structure. Um, so the spiral is a good image here because um, on the one hand, the spiral is linear. Uh, so there is um, like a progression of um, the, say the, 
um, whatever object is you know moving in the spiral um, motion, uh, the object is moving forward in some sense. Um, but then on the other hand, it's all that forward motion is part of a a, a cyclical motion as well. Um, so I, yeah, I think the spiral is a good um, image to think of here. Um, in terms of the um, sort of um, speed question, I think, uh, yeah, again, I think Simon Don would not want us to um, be thinking of these processes in terms of uh, measurements, I think. Uh, you know, he, he does say in this text that we, we don't really have a means of measuring um, the tension of information. So um, I think, uh, like in, in certain respects, you can take a process like you know the child learning to walk, and you can measure, it and you can say it takes you know twelve months or whatever before the child learns how to walk. Um, but in another respect, um, the learning to walk is not really um, a temporal process. Like the the infant either can walk or can't, um, um, and um, there's there's a sort of um, um, how to put this? Yeah, so the, the the sort of structure taking operation is not something that happens um, over the course of time in this case. Um, so depending on what um, uh, situation it is, it might be something you can measure in terms of time or something that you can't measure in terms of time. Um, uh, so yeah, I think, I think thinking of these processes in terms of speed might not be um, the best way of thinking about it. Like, I guess if you want to compare like um, the speed of an infant walking, you can compare one infant to another and say this infant learned to walk, um, you know, in 11 months and this one took 13 months or whatever. Um, but if you want to compare the process of infant uh, infants learning to walk, compare that to, I don't know, the process of birds learning to fly, for example, um, like it, it's hard to say that one is faster than the other, even if you, you know, one takes less time than the other. Um, they're, they're different processes, so they aren't really comparable in terms of speed. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Helpful. Thank you so much. Um, in the, on the previous page, when he talks about transduction again, the, fuck, where did he say it? Oh, yeah, where he says that in a modulation, uh, where he says it's, it is, yeah, form-taking is a modulation. It's comparable to the signal that conveys a relay without adding energy to the work of the actuator. That reminded me of his discussion of Descartes in a couple of places, um, both the, the kind of lossless transfer, I think is how he describes it, of uh, Descartes' um, the structure of his reasoning, and then also the in a few places he talks about the the you know pituitary gland animal spirits thing um but he i think he talks about that as you know i mean it doesn't actually work in descartes but if it were to work it would be through um a uh you know a, a transfer of like a very small amount of energy or a small amount of work from the thinking part to the extended part and it seems like this sort of recalls those discussions and maybe a, a way that I don't know if he wants to think of transduction in terms of um, Descartes uh, the lossless transfer of his reasoning process 
or if he wants to and or if he wants to think of it in terms of the uh, uh the relay system i think is what he called it of the pituitary gland in his uh i don't know his anatomy i guess yeah that's uh that's, i'm glad you brought that up that's um that's a good um uh sort of connection to make here because yeah so in um Simon Don's discussion of Descartes' physiology. Um, um, the, so yeah, Descartes has this notion of the um, how how it is that the soul can direct the motions of the body, um, uh, and it's by changing the direction of the animal spirits in the nervous system. Um, and so he thinks that all of the the nerves sort of converge on the pineal gland, and then the pineal gland is where this um, change of direction of the animal spirits happens. Uh, and so, and, and so he has to think of it in terms of change of direction because his, um, he has, uh, uh, an account of the conservation of the quantity of motion, um, uh, in, in his physics. It's one of the central principles of his physics. Um, the only thing that can, that the, the soul can affect in relation to the motion, uh, of the body is, um, the direction of the motion and not the quantity of the motion. Uh, and so Simon Don compares this to um, uh, a relay. It would be like sort of an infinitely perfect relay in in the sense that it would not um, the the modulator would not have any energetic um, influence on the um, on the signal on the carrier signal. Um, so um, it would be an infinitely small modulator. Um, uh, and of course, this physically is impossible to realize, and and Simon Don points out this uh, this fact, and and this is sort of um, uh, connected with the fact that for Descartes, the the soul shouldn't be able to act on the body in any way because they're completely separate um, uh, substances. Um, so even the animal spirits are are just pieces of extended uh, substance. Um, so there's no there's no sense in which the soul can act on the animal spirits more easily than it can on the the rest of the body, for example. Um, and and yeah, so I think this is um, this notion of a, a a relay modulating the um, energy contained in the body is um, is uh, possibly what he's also thinking of here in this in this um, text. Um, but he wants to think of it not in terms of this sort of um, infinitely um, perfect relay, but a, a real physical relay in which there's this energetic interaction between the um, the modulator and the carrier signal. Um, so uh, in this case, there's a, a finite amount of energy. The, the modulator might have a very small amount of energy, um, but it's still a finite quantity and not infinitely small. Sorry, I know we've spent a long time on this uh, section, but I the the long paragraph about the ontogenesis of behavior it almost made me think that the uh, the way that the um, behavior of the infant moves from a kind of adaptation to a disadaptation in response to a problem, and then a new adaptation, well, a problem and or a capacity. Um, and then, uh, this leads to a new adaptation. It almost made me think that you could, you could think of the different domains of individuation themselves in these terms. Um, like the, the passage from the, um, 
well, I guess psychic in the sense that it involves perception, individuation at the end of the uh, vital individuation section, uh, where the um, affectivity, which had a kind of regulatory function with respect to like brute physical perception, um, that affectivity sort of becomes a problem for the, I guess, sufficiently complex vital individual. And this new problematic is what leads to the development of uh, trans-individual reality. And so you could almost see this, these stages of progression in human infancy as being analogous to the, I guess, stages of progression, if you can call it a progression from one domain of individuation to another. Yeah, I think, um, I think there's a certain amount of ambiguity um, in Simon Don in terms of how we're meant to think of the relationship between the different domains of individuation um, to each other. Uh, so are we supposed to think of vital individuation, for example, as being like um, sort of beyond or superior to uh, physical individuation? Um, um, and there's, you know, certain uh, respects in which that does seem to be the case, where he does seem to think of the progression from, you know, physical to vital and then vital to psychical and so on, um, as being a, a sort of progression of more, um, more structured or better, or, you know, in some sense, superior, uh, domains. Um, but then there's, there's also another sense in which, like in the physical individuation chapter, he talks about, um, the, uh, elementary particles, um, uh, like the, the whole section on quantum physics, which is kind of, uh, an aside, I think, um, uh, it's not really part of this like linear progression from physical to vital and, and so on. It's like uh, it's almost like a different branch of reality. Um, uh, so there's, um, I think, potentially uh, uh, a sort of branching structure where you wouldn't have one linear progression of um, of one domain to the next, but you would have like multiple different domains sort of branching off of each other that. Um, uh, may not have uh, they may not be comparable to each other so like is is a living being more advanced or more structured or whatever than uh, an electron for example um, I'm not sure that there's a an answer to that question for Simon Don. Um so I think uh, um, yeah I think he he sometimes talks about the the relationship between these domains as a, a kind of linear progression and sometimes he um, also has other elements that don't really fit that linear progression model. Um, uh, so yeah, the, we can uh, we can certainly um, see something like uh, an adaptation and de-adaptation process going on in terms of the way that different domains of uh, of individuation are related to each other. But um, I think we should also keep in mind these sort of other branches of reality that maybe don't fit on that. Um, that uh single progression uh sorry this is my last the last thing i wanted to add on this section but i uh this the way that the disadaptation there's the adaptation then de-differentiation but the initial adaptation isn't entirely lost it's sort of built into the new adaptation that comes out of it it reminded me of that when he was talking about the personality in volume one and he talks about how the mature personality uh, is like constructed by successive crises, and that the it uh, you know truly mature personality 
recapitulates everything in the history of the, I guess, psychic individual. Um, and he refers to the expression etiem peccata, the from St. Augustine. I'll post this quote in the chat. But it, it seems like it's a similar development that he has in mind in these two cases. Yeah, I think that's um, like a completely um, parallel sort of concept here. Um, yeah, so um, this this notion of the, the etiem peccata is... Uh, so uh, Augustine has this idea that um, the uh, uh, even our sins are, are um, sort of part of... Um, Part of the process of our coming to God, um, so uh, you know, part of our, our you know life history that leads us to um, uh, a relationship with God is uh, includes those sins that um, that are um, in a certain sense uh, you know leading us away from God, um, uh, and and yeah, so Simon Don wants to or his conception of this mature individual is one. So you can think of. Um, I'm sure all of us, you know, did things when we were teenagers that we regret and, um, uh, you know, sort of look back on with uh, embarrassment and so on. Um, but all those things that we did or experienced um, in, in those times sort of contributes to making us who we are now. Uh, and uh, so like a, a fully mature sort of personality would be one that would be able to um sort of accept all of those other aspects, even the ones that you're not proud of or that you think were mistakes. Um, when you look back on them, you, you can say that it was a, a part of leading you to where you are now and it was a necessary part of your personality. Um, and so these mistakes would be analogous to the uh, de-differentiation uh, that the infant undergoes um, and, uh, and they're sort of conserved the, the earlier stages that you went through are conserved uh, and sort of repurposed in the new structure. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to get through everything today, but that's fine. We don't have a deadline or anything. Um, so if someone would, would like to read from the top of 692. Uh, yeah, I can read again. The authors we have just cited place these pulsations of the ontogenesis of behavior in parallel with the discoveries of geneticists who represent the structures of genes as intersecting assemblages between, the chain, between chains of molecules. They want to find a much more general basis for this notion of correlation uh, between chains. For them, moreover, the organism's maturation would take place according to a certain gradient, according to the cephalocaudal and proximodistal axis. And the organism's maturation could be considered to take place beginning with one pole, the cephalic pole, and then would pass through the organism in successive waves as if there were structural seeds contained in the cephalic axis, propagating transductively throughout the whole body. Consequently, organic maturation itself, which is the condition of this alternation between adaptation and evolution, would be accomplished according to a transductive process in which there would be the propagation of a form taking. The extension of an organization based on a reservoir of forms or a birthplace of forms in the organism Consequently, it would have to be said that in such a doctrine, the form remains archetypal in a certain sense due to its anteriority and its initial non-eminence to this uh, structurable field, which is called, which is its matter. Nevertheless, this form can only structure the field because the latter is in a metastable state and can pass to the stable state when it receives the form. 
in the transductive operation of modulation, which is veritably the hylomorphic operation, not just any form can unleash the actualization of potential energy of any metastable field whatsoever. The tension of a schema's form depends on the field to which it is applied. A supersaturated or supercooled solution, sorry, supercooled liquid cannot crystallize based on any germ whatsoever. The crystalline germ must be of the same crystalline system as the crystallizable body. There is consequently a certain freedom, albeit a limited freedom, in the possible couplings of form and matter. This in the course of anontogenesis, the contributions of structure, thus in the course of anontogenesis, the contributions of structure due to external circumstances can somewhat orient the structuration that comes after a dedifferentiation. But a structural germ that deviates too much from the characteristics of the structurable field no longer possesses any tension of information with respect to this field. Tension can only be defined in a field that can form a circuit. It is not a property of the isolated source, but of the source plus receiver system. Yeah, this, I'm not, it's a little confusing to me that he talks about the non-eminence of the crystalline germ to the structural, structurable field. Um, and this may go to the problem that we've talked about a couple of times with basically where the, uh, where the pre-individual begins um, or where the first sort of seed crystal comes from, because which is the same as asking like how you end up with a system with two terms in the first place, um, two terms that can be said to be in disparation and then uh, signify out of that disparation. Because the, you know, even in the introduction, he talks about an imminence of the negative between the two terms in a, in the pre-individual um, which is the, the difference between them, which makes the signification possible. So it's strange that he sort of seems to be saying that the crystal is transcendent to the field in this paragraph. Yeah, I think you're right to um, tie this in with the problem of where the crystalline germ comes from in the first place, because um, if I remember correctly, in the discussion portion, of this text, which is not included in the, the volume that we're reading now, um, uh, one of the participants asks him this question of, or a similar question about where the structural germ comes from. And he says something like, um, uh, I hesitate to ascribe it to chance or something like that. Um, he, he um, you know, in the case of the crystal, um, there is a, a certain chance um, element to it where, um, you know, a, a slight irregularity in the solution leads to um, a crystal forming in one location and, and so on. Um, but uh, um, I think he, he doesn't want to um, use chance as his explanation or as his um, uh, principle here. Um, um, another sort of answer that you could give would be like the Spinozistic answer and just say that um, each uh, each germ crystal is the result of a previous operation of structuration, um, which in turn is a, is a result of a, another, another previous operation of, of structuration um, going back to infinity. Um, there's no starting point. It's just, uh, uh, you know, just these operations of structuration going on forever. Um, again, that may not be that satisfying either. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I think here we can... Think of this: um, the non-imminence of the um, the form here has to do with 
Um, yeah, so I think the, the non-imminence of the form that he talks about here and the imminence of negation in the disparation that he talks about in the introduction, I think, um, I think those are compatible with each other. Um, so I think the, um, the imminence of the disparation is something that exists in the pre-individual before it undergoes any process of individuation. Um, so the it's only because there is this disparation, this uh, tension um, within the pre-individual reality that it is capable of undergoing um, um, transformation uh, and structuration later on once it encounters the, the, the crystalline germ or the, the structural principle. Um, uh, but then this this structuring principle is something that comes from outside. It's not um, it's not imminent to the system. Uh, the pre-individual reality itself. So the, like the crystal example, the um, the solution uh, doesn't um, doesn't crystallize until you introduce um, a germ crystal into it, uh, and then it undergoes structuration. Uh, and yeah, so it's in that sense that the um, structural principle is non-imminent, or the form is non-imminent, um, whereas the the negative term or negation is imminent to the um to the solution before the crystallization happens i wonder how that um how we could think of like the development of binocular vision in uh vital individuation because that's that's the paradigm uh you know in reference to which i always understand desperation because there, it seems like there are the two terms, which is the, you know, the, the vision on the one retina and then the vision on the other retina. And these are the two terms uh, out of which the signification of three-dimensional vision arises. Um, but it seems like if the disparation has to exist in the pre-individual system or the pre-individual field in the physical example of the crystal then you have this extra term that doesn't exist in the uh visual disparation example where there are just these two terms and then the signification between them there's no uh seed crystal there yeah that's a good point um he is going to talk about uh binocular vision uh, a little bit later in this text um so maybe we can come back to that thought when we get to that point um but um i think um yeah i think the idea here um of disparation and then the discovery of a structure um i think it's we can think of the um i guess the schema or the structure of um the third dimension as being the uh the germ crystal that brings about the structuration of the situation in which you have disparation between the two retinal images um so it's um, uh, this discovery of the uh, of the structure is analogous to the insertion of the crystal, the germ crystal, into the solution. Um, and uh, uh, so in this case, um, it's not obvious that the um, that this is uh, a non-imminent form. Um, you know, you could um, describe the situation as um, one in which the um, binocular disparation sort of 
uh, imminently bears within it the solution to the problem of disparation and uh, and you know the perception of of uh, of depth. Um, but yeah, so yeah, let's come back to this um, question when we get to that part uh, in a couple pages uh, where he talks about um, the binocular vision example. Sounds good. Okay. Um, so I can read the next bit. Um, right. Therefore, in such a theory, we find the idea according to which we cannot explain the genesis of a living being without invoking two very distinct principles, an origin of forms, here the cephalocaudal axis, and a field, a domain that receives these forms and through which, starting with the pole of this origin of forms, progressive extension occurs. Should this be brought closer in line with the theory of biological organizers? Perhaps, in any case, we must keep the idea according to which a de-differentiation of the field, field of behavior or corporeal field, is necessary so that a new structuration can be transmitted into it. Thus, for the study of the individual, we will arrive at a new principle that would account for the two aspects of form evoked a moment ago, the archetypal aspect and the hylomorphic aspect. There must be a field that externally de-differentiates because it is essentially internally potentialized. This field would perhaps correspond to Aristotelian matter insofar as it can receive a form. The field that can receive a form is the system in which accumulated potential energies constitute a metastability favorable to transformations. A behavior that disadapts and then de-differentiates is a domain in which there is incompatibility and tension. It is a domain whose state becomes metastable. An adaptation that no longer corresponds to the external world, whose inadequacy with respect to the milieu reverberates within the organism, constitutes a metastability that corresponds to a problem to be resolved. There is an impossibility for the being to continue living without changing state, i.e. structural and functional regime. This vital metastability is analogous to the supersaturation and supercooling of physical substances. This supertensed and consequently metastable state is favorable to a transductive form taking based on a structural germ. The moment this germ presents itself, it modulates the closest region of the field. Form taking propagates and spreads throughout the whole field. In this conception, the totality, which was simultaneous and comprehensive, self-coherent and united with itself from the start in Gestalt theory, it makes the whole into an organic structure of totality. Goldstein evokes the Parmenidean spheros, becomes the metastable domain that is capable of, crystallization, of crystallizing as soon as a formal germ is contributed to it. The archetype would be this formal germ that can initiate form-taking only at a certain moment of supersaturation, and thus a certain moment of an organism's maturation. Perhaps this is how the notion of archetypal form and hylomorphic relation could be applied to the ontogenesis of behavior and to the maturation of organic systems, thanks to an energetic theory of form concerning fields of metastability. There is not enough space to say how this doctrine could also be applied to the genesis of thought. However, we could say the following. We could consider the acquisition of empiria, uh, the repeatability of experiments, as the activity that makes the domain of mental content pass from a non-saturated state to a supersaturated state. The experiment relative to the same object adds and superposes partially contradictory aspects, thus producing a metastable state of knowledge relative to the object. There is an operation of form-taking because at this moment a structural germ appears as a new dimension. We have a structuration that extends over this metastable field that the experiment is. For example, the left half-field and the right half-field in vision would lead to di diplopia if the direct contents of the messages contributed by each retina remained in the subject's vision. Incompatibility and supersaturation are avoided if we discover the dimension of the detachments of depths of field. The discovery of structure does not amount to conserving everything that is contributed by the left eye and everything that is contributed by the right eye. Furthermore, there is a utilization of what can be called binocular disparation, i.e. the degree of non-coincidence of the left and right messages for perceiving the staggering of fields. A theory of perception, theory of the relation between different sensorial messages, 
would be possible based on this notion of the structuration of saturated fields. This would consequently be the indication of a new path of research for individual psychology. The analogous principle at the origin of the energetic theory of form-taking is drawn from the physical study of crystallization, whose effectuation begins with a crystalline germ in a domain where there is either supercooling or supersaturation, which are approximately equivalent conditions, which makes possible which make possible the formation of an artificial crystal based on a crystalline germ. An energetic conception of form taken can unite with the schemas of thought shared by information theory and cybernetics. Indeed, the action of the structural germ on the structurable field in a metastable field that contains a potential energy is a modulation. The archetypal germ can be quite small and may not add any or almost any energy. It is enough for the germ to possess a very weak modulatory field, but this field is comparable to the weak current that is contributed to the grid of a triode, and this extremely low energy with the minimal field that it creates between the cathode and the control grid can counterbalance the strong field that exists between the anode and the cathode. This minimal field, several volts, manages to counterbalance in the opposite direction the much larger field, 100 to 300 volts, that exists between the cathode and the anode. And due to the fact that this field created by the grid is more or less antagonist of the other, it is capable of modulating the potential energy of the source of the anode-cathode tension and is therefore capable of conditioning considerable effects in the external actuator. Wouldn't such an exercise of conditioning causality be carried out when a structural germ coming into a metastable milieu, a milieu rich in potential energy, manages to spread its structure throughout this field? Instead of conceiving an archetypal form that dominates the totality and radiates above it like the platonic archetype, could we not posit the possibility of a transductive propagation of form taking that incrementally advances with the field? Uh, let me stop here because this is a multi-page paragraph. Um, right, so here we have um, this... Um, um, example of binocular vision and he does seem to suggest that um so right at the bottom of 693 to top of 694 he says there is an operation of form taking because at this moment a structural germ appears as a new dimension and we have a structuration that extends over this metastable field that the experiment is um yeah experiment i, I actually don't have the french text with me right now but experiment the word experiment in french is uh the same as experience it's experience um um and so I think maybe experience would be a better translation here. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so he, he's talking, I think when he says about this structural germ appears as a new dimension, he's talking about the, the disparation example. So I, I think he does want us to see the discovery of the new dimension in binocular vision as an instance of the structural germ um, structuring a, a field. Yeah. It seems like it's a crucial difference, though, like, as you mentioned when we were discussing that last section, whether the structural germ is imminent to the field or um, transcendent, as he as he's sometimes suggests the, the seed crystal is. Um, I think we've talked about this a few times, but, you know, I think you can see the in the crystallization example, the uh, the germ itself is one of the terms of the disparation and then the the supersaturated solution is another term and it's the putting into contact of those two terms or the internal resonance maybe you could see the initiation of resonance as the positive like contingent factor um what enables the communication between the two terms rather than there being like two terms in the field and then a third term um but i i yeah i need to think through some of the other the many other examples of disparation that he gives and I guess uh, think about how whether or not the signification is imminent or 
um, if there's often this third transcendent term. Yeah, one, I mean, one sort of solution to the difficulty could be that there are just different kinds of transduction. Um, in, in some cases, you have a, a, um, a transcendent structural term or this archetypal form that is uh, imposed on something from without. And then maybe in other situations, you have um, an imminent um, uh, form that arises out of the situation. Um, but he doesn't, you know, tell us that. Um, it doesn't seem like he wants to um, sort of classify uh, transduction in terms of um, imminence and transcendence. Um, um, so, yeah, that's, uh, I think, a sort of open problem of uh, how to understand that aspect of um, the relationship between the uh, structural term and the uh, energetic and material terms. But it could be an ignorant question. What exactly then crystal, crystal in germ? Is it just a stimulator from from the outside? Uh, but what could it function as a crystal in germ? Yeah, this is the sort of the the big question, or one of the big questions that he doesn't really um, deal with is, you know, where does this crystalline germ come from? Um, and uh, yeah, so he he sort of um, he sort of requires um, the existence of this crystalline germ, um, but um, um, yeah, he doesn't really account for where it, it might come from. Uh, so one, yeah, what I suggested earlier is one way of thinking about this would, would be just the um, um, sort of like Spinoza's account of causes. Um, and there's just, um, you know, each crystalline germ is the result of a previous process of individuation. Um, and uh, there's just this infinite sequence of individuation processes. Um, but uh, I'm not sure that's the kind of solution that Simon Dong would, um, would appreciate. Yeah, in a way, in a way, I'm thinking maybe like it's a one of a stimulus. Uh, the difference is like it is a differentiating, differentiating stimulus, uh, which is like um, connected to the next step. So whether they like uh, out of out of a lot of so-called causes or stimulus, stimuli, kind of the the the, the cause or the stimulus, which. Uh, it is associated with uh, some kind of consequence, you know, th th some kind of moving f to the transduction, like moving to the next level, that, uh, ne next level. That's kind of called the crystalline germ, something like that. Just guess. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. Um, it seems like the crystalline germ is some has to be something that um, you know exists before the process of transduction can start. Um, that, that's how it, it seems to be presented throughout his, uh, his various discussions of this concept. Um, so yeah, it seems like we need something that already exists before the individuation process, um, but it, it does seem as if it already has the, the nature of an individual. It seems like the crystalline germ is already an individual before the individuation process starts. So. Um, that leaves us with a question of, you know, where does this individual come from? All right. Thank you. Maybe in addition to the, the Spinozist answer that you mentioned, um, you could give a Kantian answer and just say, yeah, there's an indefinite regression. And whenever you get to a new signification, if you look at the causes, there's, you know, there will be a, a disparation with, you know, terms that are themselves the, products of other significations and 
Um, it's just indefinitely as far as you go back, uh, that's what you'll run into. Yeah, we have an antinomy, and, and then we can't uh, we can't apply our concepts um, to things as they are in themselves and so on. Yeah, um, that's, that would be another answer. But I think, again, one that Simon Don would not um, be very willing to um, to agree to. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we have to um, sort of leave that question where it is. Um, um, yeah, so let's go on to the next uh, bit from the top of 695, uh, if someone else would like to read. Oh, let, let me read then. In this sense, sure. right? Yeah. Unless unless the sixth one wants to read. I can just go. In this sense... Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah? yeah go maybe? ahead. Maybe? Yeah. In this sense, it would uh, suffice to suppose that after having modulated the drone immediately in contact with it, the archetypical, arch, archetypal germ utilizes this immediately approximately drone as a new archetypal germ to go further. There would be a progressive local change of the ontological status of the milieu. The initial archetypal germ would produce around the first drone of a crystallization. It would, just, it would thus create a slightly larger modulator, and then this modulator would create a slightly larger modulator around it, and it would grow bit by bit, all while the limit would remain mod modulatory. This is how a crystal advances when an artificial crystal is sustained. Starting with a microscopic crystalline germ, a monocrystalline solid of several cubic decimeters can be produced. Does the activity of the involve a similar process? Mutase mutandis? Mutandis? It would particularly look for the foundation of the power of discovery via analogy. The fact of having reserved the problems of limited field of our content of thought by means of certain mental schema allows for the passage to another element of constructively and for the improvement of the understanding. At the very least, this is a proposed schema for inter interpreting one of the progresses of thought that does not allow itself to be reduced to pure induction or pure deduction. If we step back from the individual being, we can wonder whether social reality also contains potentials. Social and psychosocial phenomena are generally explained by processes of interaction. But as Norbert Wiener, Wiener, Winner notes, uh, it is very difficult to introduce probabilistic theories into the social domain. He was used to a comparison that I cannot fully develop here, but which is summed up in the following way. To introduce a broader sampling into probabilistic studies no better than to increase the aperture of a lange when the precision of this lange is not greater than the, the wavelength of light. We do not attain a superior reserving power by increasing the aperture of lens if the lens is not sufficiently perfect. Norbert Wiener is basically saying that random variations in the samplings of the human social domain do not permit very veritable predictably predictably or veritable explanations. Since the more the samplings are broadened, the more heterogeneous they are. Wiener arrives at this idea that probabilistic theories are weak in the sociological or psychological domain. Wiener energetics theory of form taking would have a non-probabilistic method that, go that does not grant any probability to stable configurations. We would consider that what is most important to explain in the psycho psychosocial domain is what happens when metastable status states 
are involved. What creates configurations is from taking a shift in a metastable field. Yet, there's metastable states exist. I know very well that these are not generally laboratory states, but hot states, as Jacob Moreno said, i.e. states that cannot be experimented on for long. Probably here. I can stop. Or... Uh, you can continue the rest of this paragraph. Uh, okay. Uh, you're welcome. In this, in this case, we can organize psychodramas or sociodramas. We also cannot trace the sociograms, sociograms that correspond to them. But a pre-revolutionary state seems to be the exact type of psycho psychosocial state to study with the hypo hypothesis we are presenting here. A pre-revolutionary state, a state of supernaturalization, naturalization, supersaturation, is one in which an event is right on the verge of taking place. One in which a structure is about to be emerged. All it takes is, is for the structure germ to appear. And sometimes chance can produce the equivalent of the structure germ. In a very remarkable study by M.P. Ogre, it is noted that the crystalline germ can be replaced in certain cases by random encounters or a correlation of chance among miracles. Similarly, perhaps in certain pre-revolutionary states, resurrection can occur either due to the fact that an idea descends from elsewhere and immediately leads to a structure that spreads elsewhere, everywhere, or perhaps due to a fortuitous, fortuitous, fortuitous uh, encounter, even though it is quite difficult to admit that chance, chance have the value of creating a form. <sighs> Here, right? Stop. Yeah, that's a good place to stop. Thanks. Um... Yeah, the uh, this notion of chance comes up again here um, uh, that, that I had uh, mentioned earlier. So here he, he says, um, it is quite difficult to admit that chance has the value of creating good form. So he wants to, he, he seems to be hesitant to um, ascribe to chance the capacity of producing something like a good form, um, even though he, he does sort of recognize the, the um, uh, possibility that chance encounters of molecules, for example, might bring up, uh, might bring about a crystallization um, or um, a chance event, a chance circumstance might bring about a, a revolutionary event in the social domain. Um, so um, he he sort of recognizes the role of chance on the one hand, but then he wants to, he, he doesn't really want chance to be um, sort of um, responsible for generating good form on the other hand. So he's, he's kind of stuck. He, uh, he doesn't really have a good account of what the relationship is between chance and, uh, and the, uh, uh, the structural um, principle, this uh, you know, crystalline germ principle. I think uh, it reminds me of the book. Uh, when I started to be interested in Simono, there was a book, actually, I forgot that the author, he is like American guy, like who, who wrote the book of kind of like a, it summarizes like uh, the core idea of Simulong and then oh, what's his name? I wrote an email to him, but I, I can't remember. Anyhow, anyhow, according to him, like the, the last chapter is talking about like um the meaning of individuation, psychic individuation, collective individuation. And what he said is like kind of after passing of the person of a person still like a uh something remains like a, in, in in at the level of the collectivity some such as such so what what why he i mean what i'm thinking about here is like a chance 
event, the implications of individuations, all the processes, how it is decided. It actually that has to do with the, like the according to the uh, uh, spatial temporal context. As far as I think, it, oh, quite interesting part, but yeah, it's not really clear. Yeah, there's definitely a difficult um, passage here. Um, um, yeah, and the bit you were talking about in in volume one, um, where he talks about um, what remains of a person after death, and and so he suggests that we can think of the um, um, the uh, sort of collective individuation, the way that a person is embedded in a collective is uh, something that can survive after death. So um, a person um, has relations to other people um, and those other people sort of preserve the memory of the the dead person. Um, uh, and so part of that, part of what constitutes the personality of the person when they're alive is those relations. And so um, those relations don't disappear with the the death of the person. Uh, and so part of your personality survives after death insofar as um, your relations to other people and your um, insertion into the collective are um, are part of your personality. Um, yeah, and, and so I'm not sure exactly how that connects with the um, this notion of chance here, but I think, um, um, yeah, we, we have... Um, this sort of ambiguous role of chance in bringing about individuation that Simondon um, talks about here uh, in this passage that we just read. Um, and um, you could potentially have a, an ambiguous, similar, a similarly ambiguous role of chance in, uh, in the sort of life history and then eventually death of an individual. Um, and, uh, uh, so in in volume one, he talks about um, how there's a sort of internal aspect of death in the sense that you, um, by undergoing individuation, you um, you sort of use up potentials, and death would be would be the the um, sort of exhaustion of the potentials that a, an individual contains within it. Um, but then there's also this sort of external aspect of death, the the contingent event that occurs. You know, like, uh, obviously, there is instances like getting hit by a car or whatever that are not internal. Um, um, uh, so these types of, um, yeah, there would be a, a role of chance in the end of life or the end of individuation uh, in the same way that there's a role of chance in the onset of individuation. So in French, also, also chance, like a chance, chance here? Uh, yeah, I don't have the French text with me, but I think it's probably hasard. Uh, then, yeah, exactly. Then is it like like a evenement, like event? Um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it depends on which author um, you're talking about, whether um, an event would be something that has to do with chance. Um, uh, uh, so, yeah, like the, the whole, like Malarmé and, and that whole sort of vein of thought um, has to do with... Um, a certain role of chance in the event. Uh, so an, uh, an event as such is something that has uh, a, uh, a chance element to it. Um, whereas I think in Deleuze, I think there's not necessarily the this notion of chance as part of um, you know the constitution of an event. Um, so I think it, yeah, I think it depends on the author. I don't think there's like a, um, a, 
a sort of essential link between chance and event in the French language. Okay, thank you. Ah, by the way, the name of the author, I uh, the book of I mentioned is a David Scott. Oh, okay, right, yeah, that's the one. The uh, like the I think it's called like a reader's guide to individuation, uh, psychic individuation, right. or something like that. Mm -mm. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Thanks. Um, yeah. Uh, let me. Yeah. Let's go on to the next bit. I think maybe I'll just read to the end. Uh, yeah. Let's do that. So that'll be just a page and a half. In any case, we would arrive at the idea according to which a human science must be founded on a human energetics and not just on a morphology. A morphology is quite important, but an energetics is necessary. One would have to ask why societies transform, why groups change in accordance with the conditions of metastability. However, we certainly see that what is most important in the life of social groups is not merely the fact that they are stable, but that at certain moments they cannot conserve their structure. They become incompatible with respect to themselves. They de-differentiate and become supersaturated. Just as the infant can no longer remain in a state of adaptation, these groups disadapt. In colonization, for example, during a certain amount of time, there is possible cohabitation between colonists and colonized. And then all of a sudden, this is no longer possible because potentials are born and a new structure must appear, must suddenly appear. And it must be a true structure, i.e. one truly emerging from an invention, an emergence of form for this state to crystallize. If not, one remains in a state of disadaptation and de-differentiation comparable to maladjustment, as studied by Gazelle and Carmichael. Consequently, here we are witnessing a perspective for creating a human science. This would be an energetics in a certain sense, but this would be an energetics that accounted for processes of form-taking and attempted to unite in a single principle the archetypal aspect with the notion of structural germ and the aspect of relation between matter and form. In conclusion, in the unity of the operation of the transductive form-taking of the metastable field, we will propose that in human science we distinguish between field and domain. We should reserve the, the notion of field for that which exists within an archetype, i.e. for these almost paradoxical structures that have served as a germ for the individual, as we said earlier. A field would be the tension of form, just as there is a field between the two armatures of a charged condenser. We should call domain the ensemble of reality that can receive a structuration, that can take form through a transductive operation or another operation, but the transductive operation is perhaps not the only one that exists. There are also disruptive processes which are not structuring but merely destructive. The domain of metastability would be modulated by the field of form. The second distinction, which extends into an axiological principle, consists in opposing disadaptation and degradation. Disadaptation within a domain, the incompatibility of configurations within the domain, and internal de-differentiation should not be assimilated with a degradation. They are the necessary condition of a form-taking. In fact, mark the genesis of a potential energy that will make transduction possible, i.e. the fact that the form will advance within this domain. If this disadaptation never takes place, if this supersaturation is not there, i.e. an interior reverberation that renders subsets homogeneous with respect to one another, just as thermal agitation makes all molecules collide much more frequently in our space, then transduction is not possible. In other words, we should, continue, we should consider the process of de-differentiation within a social body or within an individual entering into a crisis period, just as the alchemists of yesteryear considered liquefaction dissolution or nigrefaction putrefaction, i.e. the first moment of the magnum opus, when alchemists placed the prima materia into the retort. The magnum opus began by dissolving everything in mercury or reducing everything to the state of carbon, wherein nothing is distinguished, wherein substances lose their limit and their individuality, their isolation. After this crisis and this sacrifice comes a new differentiation. This is albification, followed by the cauda pavonis, or peacock's tail, which makes objects emerge from the confused night, just like the dawn distinguishes them by their color. 
Jung discovers in the alchemist's aspiration the expression of the operation of individuation and of all the forms of sacrifice, which suppose the return to a state comparable to that of birth, i.e. return to a richly potentialized, not yet determined state, a domain for the new propagation of life. It is possible to generalize this schema and to elaborate it through the notion of information, through the study of the metastability of conditions. Uh, sorry, if it is possible to generalize this schema and to elaborate it through the notion of information, through the study of the metastability of conditions, we can set out to found the axiomatics of a human science on a new theory of form. Right. Uh, so this bit is um, pretty dense and kind of weird. Um, so this bit about alchemy is something that, um, to my recollection, he never talks about anywhere else. Um, so this uh, sort of analogy with alchemy, um, I think, doesn't really help make things clearer unless you already know about alchemy, um, which I don't. Um, um, but um, I think he wants to see he wants us to see this notion of um, um, de-differentiation uh, and disadaptation as something that is uh, not necessarily negative or not necessarily a kind of degradation. It's something that um, that can be a part of a, a progression to a, a higher state of structure. Um, so like the, in the example of the infant learning to walk, um, the adaptation of crawling can um, be can, can undergo this uh, de-differentiation or this disadaptation, um, but that's just a stage on the the step towards um, walking. Um, and then, likewise, in social situations, a, a crisis or uh, some sort of um, apparent disadaptation is not necessarily uh, something negative in itself. It can also be um, a, a a stage in the process of generating a new structure. So that what what it means like um, every every process has its own meaning. Like there's no negative kind of action or reaction, something like that, right? Everything contributes to the new form, gene, 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 generating new forms. That's what it says. Um, well, he does say that there are. He says um, there are also disruptive processes which are not structuring but merely destructive. So it does seem like there are. Um, um, yeah, destructive processes that are not part of a structuration, but um, it's it's also the case that some processes of um, apparent destructuring or de-differentiation are are just moments in a process of structuration. Um, so I think we can um, at least leave open the possibility that um, certain processes that may look like a de a, a destructive process. Um, they might uh, be parts of a of a, a larger process of structuration that um, you know requires us to invent or discover new forms and new structures. So, kind of like a, to the conclu conclusion, like that is maybe a big difference between like the traditional idea of the um, the uh, the forming form and the matter something like that, like compared to the previous ideas, like. What uh, Simong Dong emphasizes here is kind of a continuing incessant process of uh, uh, tra transform transformation. Like, tr of course, he uses the word the transduction and then coexistence of like uh, something fixed and then something unfixed altogether. Do those kind of things like the kind of like really highlighted the part compared to traditional ones? If we conclude. Yeah, and so the, one aspect of the the difference between Simon Don's account and a, um, a traditional holomorphic account is that um, 
in the hylomorphic account, you just have the matter and then the form that is imposed on it. Um, and any sort of de-differentiation would be something like a degradation, would be a loss of form. Um, so it's only um, by losing form that matter could um, could be de-differentiated. Um, whereas for Simon Dong here, he's going to, uh, or what, what he's um, set out in, in this passage that we just read is, is the idea that um, a de-differentiation can be part of the process of taking on a new form. Uh, and so that's something that is not part of the hylomorphic schema. Oh, sure. Thank you. Yeah, so we we have officially finished uh, individuation. It took us, um, I think, more than a year. I don't know exactly when we started. Um, but uh, yeah, so thanks everyone for, um, you know, coming out and for all your contributions. Um, you know, I've definitely learned a lot by going through the book in, you know, a great amount of detail that um, I hadn't done before. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we um, went through this. Hey, thank you so much. You were great leading. Without you, nothing would uh, have been poss possible, definitely. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. Um, uh, so, yeah, we have the text for um, imagination and invention. Um, so let's, um, yeah, I'll post that again in the forum uh, section. And, uh, yeah, let's see if we can get um, maybe some other people uh, might be interested in joining when we start that one. Um, and uh, yeah, so let's start on that next week.